This morning, uh, we are going to just continue our, our way through the Gospel of Matthew as we've been studying uh, verse by verse, uh, going through in, uh, the book of Matthew. We've left off in verse uh, 12 of chapter 7, so we're going to pick up there. Uh, this morning's portion, we're going to go from verse 13 through 23 in a message that I've entitled, Entering the Kingdom. And so, I uh, uh, just want to... Uh, encourage you guys to, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 7. Before we read, uh, just thank you for your guys' prayers. My family and I were, were getting settled, settled in here uh, quite nicely in Iwakuni. We've been blessed. Uh, and uh, this last week, uh, we uh, hit a milestone. We actually have emptied out all of our boxes, and everything has a place. It might be rearranged and reshuffled a few more times, but everything at least has a place. So uh, we're very excited about that, uh, just getting settled in. And, and actually, we really like the weather starting to change, getting a little cooler. That's nice. Um, Okinawa doesn't usually start to get cooler till like, January, and it starts heating up again in, like, February. So, um, you know, something we'll have to get used to. Uh, another thing that we're getting used to here in Iwakuni is... is uh, Gathering our bearings. Uh, I don't know about you, but in Japan, even in Okinawa, it can be difficult to drive around uh, because you'll be driving on, uh, like in, in Okinawa, there's a road where you can drive on 85 and then make a left-hand turn and be on 85 and then later on make another left-hand turn and still be on 85. But if you go straight on those roads, they completely change. And I found that to be a little bit true here as well. It seems like some of these roads just kind of go around in circles. Usually I'm pretty good, like most men, right? Good with uh, bearings and directions and can know where I'm going and, and what to uh, expect. I think this is where we're going. We should be coming along. But not so much in Iwakuni. <laughs> uh, I, I think... And then there's multiple roads, too. I think there's a couple different 188s and, one, and 15s. And uh, I'm like, we're on 15, but that crossroad says 15. So uh, we're trying to get our bearings here. Uh, today we are going to be uh, talking a little bit about different roads and paths that we can take, uh, specifically highlighting the road that allows us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so uh, I want to just uh, ask you guys, invite you guys to stand as we read this morning's portion of Scripture, as we look at Jesus uh, continuing His Sermon on the Mount as He's addressing uh, the, the multitude before Him. He continues in chapter 7, verse 13, saying this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we go through this portion of Scripture here this morning, Lord, that you would lead and guide us. Lord, that you would open up our hearts and prepare our minds to receive all that you'd have for us. Lord, that this wouldn't be just an intellectual study where we kind of make a a few points and, and observations, but Lord, we'd make application to our lives as well. And we would take this uh, message uh, and apply it to our lives. We would be mindful and heartful, uh, heartful of uh, just what you have for us. And so, Father, we, we just pray your blessings. Lord, I pray that you'd be uh, with my wife and son as they are at the hospital, Lord, just getting checked up. I, I thank you for protecting them and, and look forward to hearing just uh, the good news of your faithfulness. Father, uh, bless our time this morning as well. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus introduces to the crowd of people before him two very different gates, which open up to two very different ways and which lead to two very different places. Gates, uh, you guys know, they're, they're openings in a wall or a fence uh, that usually they can be opened or closed um, and uh, they allow access for travelers uh, into a certain place. Okay? Uh, the gates Jesus speaks of allow access for travelers to two ways uh, or, or two paths, uh, some of your translations may read, or two roads. Uh, the first gate Jesus described was the wide gate. The wide gate, he says, opens up to a way that is broad. Okay? The Hebrew word for broad can also mean spacious. Okay? The description of this way is one that is it's spacious. It's comfortable. In fact, I believe it's the ESV uh, Bible that says uh, it is an easy way. Okay? Although the wide gate opens to a broad, easy path, Jesus tells us that it leads to destruction. As you journey down the broad path, its ultimate end is destruction. And that word destruction is also translated as perdition in the Bible. And it speaks of utter ruin. And we're told also about this wide gate that there are many who go in by it. The broad gate opens to a wide, easy road that is obviously appealing for many go in by it. Another thing that I think is safe to assume in regards to this path is that it must be one of some distance. For I doubt many would go in by it if they saw the end of it. The second gate Jesus described was the narrow gate. The narrow gate opens up to a way that is difficult. That word can also mean uh, confined. It's defined as pressed hard upon. This idea of it's it's something you have to squeeze through narrowly to pass through. Uh, Very confining and difficult. And although the narrow gate opens to a pressing and difficult way, Jesus says that it leads to life. This word life speaks of a fullness of life that can only come from God. 
And lastly, we're told that there are a few who find the narrow gate. I suspect that few find it because few actually look for it. Why look for a narrow gate when there's a wide gate that leads to an easy path that everyone else is taking? What is Jesus' point in bringing up these two gates? And I think it's obvious. Jesus is obviously not speaking about literal gates. He's not saying, that gate over there, that's the narrow one, and that one over there is the wide. Talking about literal gates. Um, He is speaking figuratively. He's speaking about two ways of life. The wide gate speaks of the entrance to a life of ease and comfort and living for self. Many people desire this type of lifestyle. They want a life of ease and comfort. And Jesus rightly said that there are many who go in by it. It is a life that is focused upon self, living a life to please oneself. People who want this kind of life, they want to be able to do whatever their heart desires. They want to do things their own way. And they don't want to have to listen to anyone else in regards to how to live their life. And all along they are unaware of the end that awaits them down at the end of this path. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 2 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That is this broad way, this wide gate. Jesus confirms this when he said that this type of life leads to destruction. Not just the loss of this life, but in an eternity of darkness separation from God in a place the Bible calls hell. Now, hell is uh, something that most people don't like to talk about. Uh, It doesn't give you you touchy, feel-good feelings when we talk about hell. Uh, But Jesus wasn't afraid to talk about hell. And we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it either. Jesus uh, spoke more about hell... Uh, than nearly any other topic within the Bible. And, and so it's something that is important. It's something that we need to understand. Some try and say that hell is not real and that the Bible is speaking figuratively when describing hell. That is wrong. Okay? Hell is real. Okay? It is a real place. It is not a figurative uh, place that is spoken of within the Bible. Some people try and say that hell is merely separation from God. Okay? That, you know, basically you'll just die and you'll be buried or cremated or whatever and you're just not going to be with God, but there's not really a a bad place to go. You just don't get to be with God. And, And although that is part of what hell is like, that separation from God, that is not the whole truth about hell. In hell, you will be separated from God But there is more than that. The Bible tells us and describes for us many things about hell. It is a place of unquenchable fire and utter darkness. It is a place filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a place of punishment. Understanding the seriousness and reality of hell, we understand why Jesus started off by saying, Enter by the narrow gate. The narrow gate speaks of a life of difficulty and sacrifice, but one that ultimately leads to life. Jesus in John 14.6 declared that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
our first major point this morning is simply this, that we need to enter in, choose to enter in by the narrow gate. We need to choose Jesus. Jesus is the narrow way. In fact, He is the only way we will ever come to the Father. He is the only way we will experience a life of fullness that God has for us. Many in the world today don't like the idea or notion that Jesus is the only way. They claim that the church is too narrow-minded, that we ought to be more open. And they'd like to to see the church uh, say that many roads lead to heaven. That as long as you're sincere in your faith and your search uh, for meaning, that you'll find God. That all the the gods of this world, they're really all one and the same God, and and we can get to Him through various different means. If you want to worship Buddha, you'll eventually get to the same God, or you want to practice Hinduism or uh, other faiths or no faith at all. You just want to search for meaning in life. Ultimately, we'll all get there. We're all going to get to the same place. That is not true. That is a lie. That type of thinking goes against everything taught to us in Scripture. And if you embrace this line of thinking, you make Jesus out to be a liar. Because it was He that said that there was no other way. Not only do you make Jesus out to be a liar, you belittle the sacrifice that He made upon the cross for you and me. You say, I don't need the work of Calvary. I can get there on my own way. And that is not true. You know, people in the world don't like that Jesus is the only way and that Christians are narrow-minded. But you know what? I'm kind of glad that Jesus is the only way. I'm glad that God made it that way because it's so much easier that way. God hasn't given us lots of different choices and lots of different roads and we'll all get there somehow, some way. He says, no, it's real simple. There's two choices. Those two choices are Jesus Christ or eternal destruction. And it makes choosing so much easier, in my opinion. The decision is easy. But it doesn't mean that life will be easy as a Christian. Jesus did say that the narrow way was difficult. It's difficult because you must deny yourself. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The Christian walk is not a walk in the park with the sun shining and the birds chirping every single day. There's some days that are like that, but not every single day. We will encounter trials and difficulties. We will experience persecution Acts 14 says that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And so it's not easy. It is a difficult way. It's a way that's pressing and and can feel like almost crushing. How do we get through this narrow way? But God God tells us that He'll be with us every way, every step of the way. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9 says that we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Later on, it says, therefore, we do not lose heart. 
Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, we realize that this life on earth is temporary. And we have our eyes focused upon the eternal. The sacrifices that we make for Him now, the, the difficulties, the, 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 the pressings and the, the despair, those things, uh, they're, they're temporary. And we have our eyes on eternity. The sacrifices that we make, they do not compare to the glory of what it will be like in heaven for all eternity. And can I tell you this? The difficulties and the sacrifices that you make today for the Lord, they will be very much worth it. When you are in heaven, you will not be thinking, Man, I had a rough life and that I'm, I'm kind of bummed out. I, I, I wish I would have just lived for myself. Okay, you're not going to think that. Okay? It will be worth it. Trust me on that. Verse 15 through 20 Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes, thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And therefore, it tells us, Jesus says, by their fruits you will know them. Our second point, it's pretty easy in what Jesus says. He says, beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets because they will tell, take you away from Jesus. Okay? They will lead you down the wide path. Beware is a word that means we need to pay close attention to something. It's not just kind of like, oh yeah, you know, I noticed that half in chance. It's no, we are we are focused, we are attentive to what's going on. Okay, we pay pay close attention and we're on the lookout for false prophets. False prophets are are people that claim to speak on behalf of God or to be messengers of God, but in reality they only serve their own self interests. False prophets will not be easily recognized. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, it tells us. Meaning that they're going to look like the rest of us. Oftentimes the the church and the body is described, we're described as sheep or the the flock. And so they're going to come in sheep's clothing. They're going to look like us on the outside. Okay? False prophets don't go around with a name tag that says, Hello, my name is and it says false prophet. You know, that it's not that easy. Okay? False prophets are tricky in their wording. They come speaking truth, but twist it or, or they apply it in, a, in an inappropriate manner. And everything they if everything excuse me, if everything that they said was a lie, then we'd easily be able to spot them. Okay? But that's not how it works. They speak nearly all truth. Okay? And they just mix in a little 
just a little twist or a little something that's not that's off. And if you're not paying attention, you can be easily swayed by them. And so we need to beware. Okay? You can be led away onto the broad path by false prophets. Jesus did tell did leave to us some tips, some pointers on how to spot a false prophet. And so remember that the context here is that we just finished talking about how we need to enter by the narrow gate and how Jesus is the only way. And now we're talking about false prophets. It's shifting our, our attention to them. When it's all said and done, we have to realize this about every false prophet. Okay? When it's all said and done, every false prophet will try and tell you that there is another way. Some will offer completely different ways outside of Jesus, but oftentimes they'll keep Jesus so as to make their lives more believable. They'll simply add things to Jesus. You need Jesus plus. Fill in the blank. Jesus plus this. Jesus plus that. Jesus plus your own works. Jesus plus another prophet. Jesus plus religion. Jesus plus church. Jesus plus anything else. That's a different way. Jesus said he's the only way. The list goes on and on and is what we can fill in with Jesus plus. And there's many false prophets that have given us Jesus plus. And there's still today many false prophets that give Jesus plus. We need to be aware of them. Again, I'll bring you back to Jesus' words. He said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Anyone who tells you there is another way is false. Okay? Jesus is the way and Jesus is the truth. In comparison to false prophets, we look at Jesus and we see He is truth. Number two... Every false prophet is a ravenous wolf among sheep. The Greek word for ravenous is used five times in the New Testament. And this is the only time that it's actually translated ravenous. Okay? All the other times it's translated as extortioner. Interesting, I, I, when I was looking up that word, I thought, oh, ravenous, what's that mean? And it's translated as extortioner every other time it's mentioned in the Bible. And if you think of an extortioner, uh, the word carries with it the idea of being violently greedy. Okay? An extortioner is someone who gets someone to give them things by using force or threats, manipulation of some kind. And that's what a false prophet will do and what they will use. Okay? They want the praise of man. Like the Pharisees who did things to be seen by men, some false prophets are simply looking to steal the praise of man. Okay? Another thing that false prophets will go after is your allegiance. They want you to follow them wherever you go, wherever they go, they want you to go with them. Another thing, what are false prophets after? I think it's one of the more obvious ones, is that they're after your money. Many false prophets are simply out to fill their wallets with your cash. We need to beware. And then there are some that want the glory of God. They want people to attribute to them what only belongs to God. And so they're extortioners. They're stealing. They want, they want your cash. Okay? They want your allegiance. They want the praise of men. And they want the glory of God. False prophets want to take what isn't theirs. And they will be relentless about it. 
Jesus directed us to take a closer look at the fruit in their life. And this is the third way that we can tell. Uh, the third clue that Jesus gives to us as how to spot a false prophet. He says, you will know them by their fruits. Every false prophet produces bad fruit. Eventually, the fruit will be rotten. Jesus gives us a very simple to understand illustration of the natural relationship between trees and fruit as a means to identify false prophets. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The obvious answer is no, of course not. You gather grapes from grapevines and you gather figs from fig trees. Even so, Jesus said, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. We can easily identify a tree based upon the fruit that it produces. An apple tree produces apples. An orange tree produces oranges. Cherry tree produces cherries. And a cherry tree cannot produce apples. And it cannot produce oranges. It only produces cherries. And it's funny, actually, my uh, little side note here. This, this application is getting a little bit more difficult to use from time to time because people are grafting in all these different... You know, you can get a citrus tree, and a citrus tree can have oranges on it and lemons on it and all these... Never mind. But usually, for, for all intents and purposes, cherry trees produce cherries. Okay? And oranges produces oranges. Some orange trees produce lemons and limes if you graft them in properly. But they're still... Different shoots. Eh, never mind. If you're into grafting and gardening, you'll get it. But if not, you're probably lost. So I'll just move on. Okay. If you see bad fruit, it must have come from a bad tree. Okay. If you see good fruit, it must have come from a good tree. It's very simple, right? What exactly does good fruit look like? How do we know? Spiritually speaking, good fruit looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This type of fruit can only be produced by those who are in Christ. Jesus said that I am the vine, you are the branches... He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. John 15:5. Well, what does bad fruit look like? We know what good fruit looks like. Well, how do we know bad fruit when we see it? Well, the counterpart to the fruit of the Spirit is the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19-20. speaks about the works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, uh, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Jesus says, look at their life. What does it produce? Jealousies, selfish ambitions, heresies, Envy, idolatry, those are the marks of a false prophet. Those are the marks of the works of the flesh. That is bad fruit. If it's bad fruit, it's a bad tree, and it's a false prophet. 
Jesus tells us what will happen to the tree that doesn't bear good fruit. It will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a picture of what will happen to the false prophet and any other who would follow him. The fire represents hell, the ultimate end to all who choose a path other than Jesus. And it's interesting here too, one of the things I wanted to note is that it tells us what will happen to the tree that doesn't bear good fruit. Okay? Not just the bad producing fruit, okay? but there's also, if you don't produce fruit at all, okay? if you're just fruitless, okay, if you're not producing good fruit, the same applies. If you're not producing, if you're producing bad fruit or not producing fruit at all, okay, some people think they can just be neutral and not choose God and not choose any religion and I'll be okay. That's not right. Okay? If you're not producing good fruit, cut down and thrown into the fire is what Jesus says will happen. Okay? Verse 21, 20 through 23, we'll finish up this portion here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are some sobering words. Words that can be a little scary to think about it. As I mentioned before, oftentimes when I study the Bible, I like to place myself within the story and as if I'm the person there. And I do not want to be that person. That was not a, a good just play it out. What would that be like if I'm before the maker and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Uh, that's not good. Okay? I, I don't wish that, would not wish that upon anyone here or any, anybody at all. Jesus speaks about those that will enter into the kingdom of heaven and those that will not. Those that entered by the narrow gate and those that entered by the wide gate. Those that trusted in Jesus as the only way and those that tried their own way. Let's take a look at these two groups of people. First, we're going to look at those who will not enter. What, is it, what can we glean here from this portion of Scripture? It tells us in regards to those who will not enter, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The first thing, that I would think is worth noting is that Jesus said that there would be many, many who will say to me in that day. Just as Jesus described earlier, there are many who go in by that wide gate. Jesus says that there will be many on that day that think they're in the good, that think they're okay but they will not be. There are, the, the idea here, if you think about it, and it's a little bit sobering, is that many who think they should get into heaven will be denied access. I believe there are many people today 
that have a false sense of assurance when it comes to their standing with God. I believe that they've been led astray by false prophets that have told them lies and given them a false sense of security. What sort of lies do they tell or what sort of lies have they bought into? I I see the effects of three of them here in this portion of Scripture. I'd like to highlight them. The three lies that the false prophet that this world will say and speak in regards to giving you an assurance of an entrance into heaven. We'll look a little deeper here. The first lie. Okay? The first lie that can be noticed is the belief that saying the right words will get you into heaven. These people knew the right thing to call Jesus. They knew the right words to say when they called Him Lord, Lord. And don't get me wrong, calling Jesus Lord is a requirement to entrance into heaven. In fact, all will call Him Lord. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so they were right to call Jesus Lord. But just saying that Jesus is Lord does not get you into the kingdom of heaven. It's not a secret password that automatically gets you in. That's like you, you knock on the door and they slide the opening. You know, what's the password? Jesus is Lord. Okay, enter in. That's not how it works. Words don't get you into heaven. A lot of people will try and say that words get them into heaven. They'll say a special prayer that said they'd... uh, Excuse me. A lot of people will try and say that a special prayer they said will get them into heaven. But they're wrong. Just like saying Christ Jesus is Lord doesn't get you into heaven, neither do words in a prayer necessarily get you into heaven. Many people I've come across and I've talked to people and street witnessing and just reaching out to people, you know, uh, where do you think you're going to go? You know, when you die, where do you think you're going to go? And some people I've talked to say, oh, I'm going to go to heaven. Well, why do you think that? Or how do you know that you're going to go to heaven? And and sometimes I've heard the answer, you know, because I said the sinner's prayer. You know, the sinner's prayer is, is not bad, but it's not the secret password to get into heaven. Let me clarify. I know many people use the sinner's prayer or a prayer like it, a generic prayer that we acknowledge our sin before the Lord, our need for Him, our acceptance of Him in our life, and there's nothing wrong with it. But they are not magic words that get you into heaven. The prayer itself does not do that. Many people have prayed that type of prayer, but the power to save is not found in the words The words in the sinner's prayer do not save you. But some people think that way. They think, I said a prayer. I'm going to be in. And that's it. Even people in the church fall for this lie. That words will get them in. I know a lot of people that know how to speak Christianese. I can speak Christianese too. I'm still learning Japanese, but I'm pretty good at Christianese. Okay? You grow up in the church, you know all the right things to say, you know all the answers to the Bible trivia questions, but just because you can say the right things does not mean you'll get into heaven. Words do not get you into heaven. 
The second lie that I see the effects of here is the lie that special works will get you into heaven. These people did religious works. They prophesied. They cast out demons. They did many wonders. And all, all in the name of Jesus. Let me tell you this. Just like words don't get you into heaven, doing works does not guarantee you access into the kingdom of heaven. No matter how great, how wonderful, or awe-inspiring your works may be, they are no guarantee for heaven. These guys, they say that they prophesied. Well, so did Balaam. And he wasn't right in God's eyes. Balaam was, was trying to be a prophet for hire. And God was so upset with him that he sent the angel of the Lord to kill him because of his perverse way. And yet he still prophesied. It took Balaam's donkey to stop him from getting killed. Any of you guys know that account? Balaam prophesied. That does not mean that he had a right relationship with the Lord. These guys said that they cast out demons. Well, guess what? Judas Iscariot was sent out to do Judas Iscariot was sent out to do the very same thing. Judas was sent out two by two and was given power to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease in addition to casting out demons. And yet he betrayed Jesus with a kiss and for 30 silver pieces. These guys said that they they did many wonders. So did Simon the sorcerer. In Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer awed the people for years in Samaria with his wonders and his sorceries and even tried to purchase the power of God with money. And Peter said to Simon, You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. And so we see... Prophesying, casting out demons, doing wonders, okay? they don't guarantee anything. These men, they, they trusted in their works to gain them access to God, and, and people still do that today. People have fallen for the lie and think that they can earn entrance into the kingdom of heaven through various religious works. Some people, those same types of people that I've talked to in the past, instead of saying, oh, I I know I'm going to be saved because I said the sinner's prayer, sometimes they'll say, I know I'm going to be in heaven because I was baptized. Or they'll say, others, they'll think that sharing their faith with others gets them into heaven. And still others think that reading their Bible will get them into heaven. Or going to church every week is going to get them into heaven. Those works, they're great. They're good. I'm not trying to to say they're bad. We should be doing those things. But those things, those works, they do not get us into heaven. People will say, because I was baptized. You know? How do you know you're going to... Oh, I was baptized. I was baptized as a kid, so I'm good to go. You know? Or, or, you know, I read my Bible every day. I go to church every week. I know I'm safe. Those things are good. But those works, they do not secure a spot in the kingdom of heaven for us. 
our works do not grant us access to heaven. The third lie that I see the effects of is at the end of verse 23. And that is the lie that we can practice lawlessness and still get into heaven. These people practiced lawlessness, it tells us. What does that exactly mean, you may ask, or you may wonder? What does that mean to practice lawlessness? To practice means to do business as or to work at something. It's a continual performance of something. You're continually doing it, practicing this thing, right? Or we practice sports or we practice, you know, doing different activities. We do it over and over and over again. We get really, really good at it. Practice makes perfect, you know, all those different things. Practicing lawlessness. Lawlessness is simply a condition of being without the law. Very simple. 1 John 3.4 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And so we put these ideas together and we see that practicing lawlessness is continually living as if there is no law. And that there is no such thing as sin. The picture painted here is that you just do as you please with no concern for the law or for sin. It doesn't matter. I can live my life the way I want to and it's okay. That's a lie. God's law says don't commit adultery and you think I'll do it anyways. It doesn't matter. God's law says don't steal and you do it anyways. God's law says don't lie. You do it anyways. People that live this way, they've usually bought into the lie that God is okay with our sinful living and our lifestyle doesn't really matter to God, that He'll forgive us anyways. Now, I've witnessed to people before that have said this very thing. I have family members, in fact, who claim to be followers of Christ, will say they are Christian and yet are living in sin. They... I don't need to go into the details of my family, but just safe to say they, they are blatant sin and sin. I confront them, I tell them, and they say, you know what, it's okay. God's okay with it. I'm like, God's not okay with that. But yet people believe that. I remember talking to one gentleman before, and he said, you know what, God and I, we got an agreement. I'm like, really, what's this agreement? You know? He knows what I do, and I know what he's doing, and he, you know we're, we're okay. We've got this agreement, this uh, understanding uh, of I'm going to do things my own way, and, and uh, it's okay. That is not okay. But yet people believe that. People believe that they can just live their life however they want to live, and that they'll still get into heaven. Because they're, well, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good person after all. I really didn't do anything really bad. That is a lie. And unfortunately, this happens in the church as well. Although people in the church, they're a little bit better at hiding it from others. But God knows and sees all. He knows those who are practicing lawlessness. There's those in the church that still think, I can just do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. God's going to forgive me. That's a dangerous place to be. These men that were denied access to the kingdom of heaven, they fell for the lies of the false prophets. 
They thought words and works would get them into heaven, and they believed that their sin wouldn't keep them from entering into heaven either. They were wrong. Let's look at this other group, those that do enter the kingdom of heaven. What can we learn about this group? First off, we notice that they did the will of the Father. There in verse 21, at the end of verse 21, they did the will of the Father. Second, and and it's somewhat somewhat indirectly, but I think that we can safely infer that Jesus knew them. Those that were denied access were not allowed in because Jesus did not know them. And so therefore, I, I think that it's safe to conclude that Jesus knew those who were allowed access into the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean that Jesus knows them? Shouldn't Jesus know everyone? He, he's God after all, right? Doesn't He know everyone and know everything? And I would say, yes, He does. Okay? He is God. God does know everyone. He knows the tiniest of details about your life. He knows, in fact, how many hairs are upon your head. And so God pays attention to some of us more than others, but He knows how many hairs are upon your head. He knows all about you. In fact, He probably knows you better than you know yourself. So what does this mean then? The Greek word for know, it means to be familiar with through personal experience. It means that Jesus knows you personally, intimately, based upon a relationship. Jesus knew the people that got into heaven. There was a relationship that he had with them. He knew them intimately. What was the other thing that they did? What about doing the will of the Father? Well, we need to ask the question, what is the will of the Father? What is the will of the Father? Matthew chapter 18, verse 14 tells us that even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. John 6, verse 39 and 40, it tells us this. This is the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus is speaking that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Verse 40, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at that day. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Three things I'd like to note about the will of God. Number one, it's not God's will that any of us should perish. Number two, it's God's will that whoever believes in His Son would have everlasting life and that His Son would not lose a single one of them. And number three, our sanctification is God's will. Sanctification is its a big word, okay? but it, it just describes the continuing work of refining that God does in our life as we live here on earth. God promises us that He will complete the work that He began in us. Philippians 1.6 tells us that. And, and so as we look at this, it seems that God's will for my life and for your life is that we would not perish but that we would believe in His Son and have everlasting life and that we would trust Jesus 
to carry us through and to refine us until that last day. That's the will of God. We need to do the will of our Father in Heaven. It's our third and final point. We need to do the will of the Father in Heaven. How do we participate in doing the will of God? By believing in His Son and trusting in Him to complete the work that He began in us and that He will not lose us. That we are secure in His hands. Those that will enter into the kingdom, they will do the will of the Lord. They believe upon Jesus and Jesus knows them and He keeps them until that final day. Those that are entering into heaven, when you ask them how they know that they're going to enter into heaven, how do they know that to be true? The correct and proper answer should be, not because I said this prayer or not because I do these works, but they will point to Jesus and what He did. They will say, I know I'm going to heaven because Jesus knows me personally and He paid the price for my sin and He's going to see me through until that day. Our hope is in nothing less than Jesus Christ. It really is all about Jesus and what He has done. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to the Father. He is the truth that stands in opposition to false prophets. And He is the only way to life everlasting. This morning, maybe you're here and and you find yourself wandering after hearing a a message and thinking about a a situation that could happen where you're before the Father and, and you're not so confident of what you'll hear Him say. Maybe after hearing this message, you know, I'm not on the right road right now. Perhaps you're here today and you would admit to being misled by the lies of false prophets. You've been trusting in words or works when you really need to be trusting in Jesus and His Word and His work upon the cross. Today is a day that you can adjust course and get back on the narrow path. If you're here today and you don't have the assurance of knowing on that final day that Jesus, what He will say to you, Because he's probably going to say one of two things. We see different examples throughout scriptures. He's either going to say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Or he's going to say, Depart from me. I never knew you. If you're not sure what God's going to be saying to you on that day, can I encourage you that you can know for sure? Can I let you know that? Today you can know. You can know for sure what will happen that day if you are willing to do the will of your Father. Believe on His Son and trust in Him to see you through to that final day. The authority to grant you access into heaven has been given to God's Son and Him alone. He was given that authority when He died upon the cross and He rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. He alone can grant you access into the kingdom of heaven. And placing your belief and trust in Jesus really is a matter of the heart. In your heart, you need to realize your need for Him. You need to understand that the sin in your life, it keeps you from having a relationship with Him. Jesus, because of sin, there's a barrier between you and God. 
And you need to recognize that Jesus paid for the penalty. Paid the penalty for your sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Your sin, it earns you wages, right? You, you, you do work, you earn wages. Your sin, what it earns you is death and destruction. But Jesus took those sins upon His shoulders when He died in your place. In exchange, He offers to you a gift, uh, eternal life. And we need to turn from the broad way and place our hope and belief in Jesus Christ. The narrow way, the only way. We need to bring, begin a relationship with Him that will last so that on the final day, you will be confident and sure that He will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And, and so, this morning, you know, it's a, it's a heavy portion of Scripture. I realize that. Uh, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lead you in a, a special prayer or anything uh, right now. Uh, but what I want to do to you, for you is to offer this to you. If you're here and you're in need of making that decision to believe and trust in Christ, and you're wanting to make that decision, I'd like to invite you to come up during this last song. Walter and the, the guys are going to come up and and lead us in one last song. And I uh, just want to invite you to come up. And I, I'd like to pray with you if you're ready to make that decision. Okay? And it's not going to be special words that we say, but it's all a matter of your heart. If in your heart you realize, yeah, I'm on the wrong path. Okay? I've been misled by false prophets. Or I've been living for myself and just living and practicing lawlessness. And I, I need to make that decision. I need to, to, to make sure I'm right with the Lord and I need to get my relationship with Him on the right place I want to invite you to come forward and and, uh, just worship the Lord Uh, and also uh, I want to pray for you and so uh, Walter if you guys want to come up and just lead us in in one last song Um, and as they do that uh, like I said I just want to encourage you guys if you if you know you're confident you're like Amen Glenn great message I'm going to be in heaven. I know that. I want to ask you guys just to be in prayer. For if anybody that might be here that would say, I'm not so sure and I'm not so confident. And so please be in prayer uh, as we worship the Lord. And if you need prayer, come on down. I'd love to pray with you uh, and uh, make myself available. Actually, if I can, don't mind, Sydney and Jenny, if you want to make yourselves available too, if anybody wants prayer, you guys can come forward and pray. All right? God bless you guys. Let's worship.